Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. First off, I'd like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on stolen land. From where I'm presiding today is the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Today for our Green Left podcast, um, we are interviewing Clifton D. Rosero, who is a le- elected leader of the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist Liberation in India. Clifton has in- extensive experience as a labour lawyer representing workers in the fight for their rights, and this is often in the context of fierce repression. He has also been involved in winning union representation for Dalit sanitation workers who carry out the extremely hazardous job of manually unlocking sewer pipes in Bangalore. Clifton is also going to be a feature speaker at the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2023 A World Beyond um, Capitalism conference being hosted by Green Left that is taking place on July 1st to July 2nd in Melbourne at the Victorian Trades Hall. He will be a a feature speaker on the panel titled The Fight for Democracy in India is Modi Fascist, where he will be giving his eyewitness report. Um, So yeah, we have Clifton here today to have a bit of a, you know, to have a bit of an interview and discussion, you know, around different kind of topics um, related to kind of Indian pol- um, Indian politics. But really, we're wanting to kind of have a discussion with him about, you know, really what is the nature of the Modi government. Um, so, yeah, to start off, um, Clifton, um, in Australia, we recently just had Prime Minister Modi visit where he was, guess, he was met with this glowing reception from sections of the Indian community in Australia, but he was also met with... Uh, a lot of a glowing reception from politicians as well, um, but from both sides of the, of, of the political spectrum within Australia. Now, we've often heard, heard this thing that the international community and the liberal media have described Modi as a reformer that enjoys great popularity within India, but at the same time, he is described as a tyrant and is even an outright fascist who has seen a weakening of democratic institutions. And I guess what we, I guess, Clifton, I want to hear sort of. From your perspective, can you give us a bit of background on Modi's rise to power in 2014? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, this um, the response that one is talking about, of course, the recent Australia experience is quite interesting. Now there is some amount of information coming out on the manner in which that entire program was actually organised, the manner in which the crowd, uh, at least uh, from what I've given to understand, uh, a stadium which was not fully, not full, but the manner in which the crowd was actually orchestrated over there, so some seem, some bit of information seems to be coming on that. And that in a way also, you know, uh, the entire megalomania of the man kind of, you know, put uh, it kind of comes out in, in that, entire, uh, that entire kind of program that they organize. Now, I mean, I think, you know, there is no consistency at this point in time in terms of how the, you know, how the international order actually looks at Modi. If you look at it from a time frame point of view. Now, 20 years ago, he was uh, a personal non grata who was not even allowed to visit some of the countries, given the role that he played um, uh, in the in, in the genocide that took place in uh, the state of Gujarat, of which he was the chief minister. But twenty years later, now he's been heralded as the boss. I think as the uh, as the uh, uh, the Australian uh, premier seems to have introduced him. I think uh, the, the, there there is also a political and economic rationale to this entire shift. Uh, I think worldwide we're seeing a rightward shift. And this is in the context of uh, a global capitalism, which uh, which is uh, where capitalism, a deep 
deep uh, crisis but is also on the offensive uh, so when you when you see the the kind of fascism that uh, that we are seeing in india you also it's mirrored by a rightward shift in several other countries and generally i think this kind of a uh, economy this uh, capitalism in crisis it's germane ground for this kind of uh, regimes to to come up and of course then for these regimes to prop up each other so the i think in this kind of an international uh, economic situation to expect um, any kind of opposition to modi i think uh, or any other authoritarian uh, or majoritarian leader i think is not possible so the, there's obviously going to be collaboration there's always there's obviously going to be legitimization and from the australian point of view i think uh, that relationship has been growing for some time the manner in which the governments kind of uh, came together to ensure that you know adani gets a, a contract for coal mining in australia uh, which was facilitated by the australian government and of course modi then f- ensured that the kind of funds that was required for that project was given to adani from the banks so this collaboration and legitimization by the international order is really not you know out of the ordinary now coming to coming to modi i think you know one needs to understand modi's ascent to power it's essential to understand the uh, hindu supremacist organization called the rss the rashtriya swayamsevak sangh which is the national uh, volunteer organization uh, formed in 1925 it has a particular vision of this uh, of of india which is completely contrary to what uh, at that point in time the freedom fighters were fighting for and of course now which is completely contrary to what the constitution stands for so this organization you know has been mobilizing it for the last 100 years in various ways to try and uh, you know establish its its uh, its uh, its notion of what this country should be which is primarily a hindu majoritarian state now modi comes from those tables he joined that uh, basically the rss uh, as these local branches which runs in various areas and villages where uh, which basically are indoctrination camps now he as a young as a young boy of 8 years old was part of those camps continued to be associated with the rss became a full timer with the with the rss uh, uh, sometime in the 1960s late 1960s and there grew in the rss itself and of course his skills his organization skills is uh, is flair for rhetoric and of course is flair for uh, inflammatory anti uh, anti muslim anti christian kind of uh, you know uh, kind of speeches is something that helped him progress in the rss somewhere in 2001 he was then uh, basically from rss which is the which is the the mother organization as you can say uh, which has several fronts the bjp or the bharatiya janata party is the political front of the rss now rss controls more or less everything that's done you know in terms of the policies that the bjp undertakes the kind of uh, decisions it makes on and so forth and very important positions of the bjp are held by people who are from the rss so be, uh, the rss parachuted uh, modi to gujarat in, uh, as the chief minister in 2001 and uh, what we see after that of course you know something that um, uh, the uh, uh, the gujarat the, the godra incident where you had this absolutely horrific uh, uh, train fire where 59 uh, uh, 59 hindus died who were coming back from uttar pradesh basically that was uh, basically coming back from some kind you know some kind of a, can you you can say this you know uh, a kind of a, uh, hindu political program in in uttar pradesh so these 59 people die and what follows is absolute mayhem the pogrom in gujarat where uh, officially the government says you know that some 1169 people died but unofficial records say that more than 2000 people predominantly muslims were killed village after village there was pillage there was plunder there was rape 
and I think you would have recently uh, read uh, that one of the most gruesome cases was this gang rape of this uh, woman called Bilkis Banu, which also there were several, uh, there were children and women who were also killed in that incident and they actually got convicted. This is part of the 2002 uh, uh, pogrom. But the state government and the central government came together and actually have released them, premature release of these convicted rapists and murderers. So that's the kind of, you know, incident that took place over there. After that, of course, you know, like I said in the beginning, Modi did come in for some bit of flack in the, uh, from the international order. He was not allowed to fly to the US, if I remember correctly. And to his, to his, uh, uh, and it's the corporates who basically came to his, uh, to his aid. And uh, the person who kind of really orchestrated this entire support from the capitalist lobby was Gautam Adani, who tried to create that kind of legitimization for, uh, for Modi. So you then have uh, the following year election taking place and Modi, um, BJP coming back with a thumping majority. And what then follows is a series of pro-corporate policies, pro-corporate laws. You look at uh, social expenditure, particularly on health and, expen and, uh, and education dipping. And you also have increased caste atrocities and of course uh, a very, very, uh, you know, very vicious uh, communal polarization, the othering of the Muslims and the Christians that take place. In fact, that actually marks the entire reign of uh, of of Modi, and that continues, you know, till 2014. So from 2002 to 2014, Modi basically consolidates his entire hold over the uh, BJP by being the you know uh, the undisputed leader of the BJP in Gujarat, and slowly then transforming to the national uh, to the national plane. And just to even for us to understand how Modi came to power in 2014. So basically, it was within the BJP, he created a situation where it was inevitable that he would be the prime, minister, prime ministerial candidate, that every other uh, person who was capable was sidelined. That's the kind of, you know, uh, kind of role that he played at that point. But there are other also uh, objective kind of, uh, you know, uh, causes for, uh, for BJP's ascent to power and Modi becoming the prime minister. Firstly, at that point in 2014, it was 10 years of uh, a Congress-led uh, uh, government, coalition government, which uh, it, at the end of which there was an economic downturn. And of course, it was a regime that was marred by corruption. So you'd remember that there were these massive anti-corruption uh, rallies that had broken out around the country, which basically delegitimized the Congress party completely. And the media played a very, very big role in that. And of course, the RSS mobilized its entire cadre in those entire protests. So Congress lost its position as the, natu the natural leader of the ruling classes. So they were looking for an for an alternative. What better alternative than Modi who displayed over the 10 years that he was the chief minister that he would do anything for the uh, for the corporates. And you also then had the middle class which had this you know, kind of clamoring for this um, for this very strong leader, you know, this very offhand people would say, yeah, yeah, India needs a dictator now. I remember the, you know, those conversations at that time. So all of these issues, you know, all of these came together and capitulated, uh, catapulted um, Modi to the central stage and the prime ministership of this nation. Yeah, that's, uh, I think you've given a very kind of good, a good sort of um, overview, I guess, a rise to power. And I guess I want to kind of hear a bit more, a bit more of a, I guess, a summary in general, I guess, because now there is starting to be criticism of Modi within the international community. I mean, even when he visited, there was a certain level of kind of criticism, um, especially from mainstream sort of um, human rights organisations. And I guess, what can you tell us about, you know, in terms of the contemporary, like today, we obviously know about 
Modi's history, um, as you sort of covered there. But what about his current sort of track record on human rights and democracy, which I guess he's been increasingly being described as an autocratic right-wing Hindi chauvinist government, um, which ha- threatens very much to overturn um, India's foundation as a secular republic. Yeah, actually, I think you know one of the reason I also gave a bit of a background is one really needs to understand his trajectory to, to to you know place in context where he is today. So basically, you have Modi's rise, which is the persona, which is very authoritarian, but there's an ideology which is Hindutva. So you know, it's it's um, it's these two that kind of uh, you know sustained his power, uh, sustained his power as a chief minister and brought him to the center. I think here, you know, the, 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 there's a very important thing that we need to understand. Uh, if you look at the entire the freedom struggle of our country uh, to throughout the British, the colonial past, we gen- we normally say, you know, that uh, democracy perhaps is the biggest gain that we got from the freedom struggle. Because either too, it was before the colonial past came, of course, you know, it was feudal, it was, you know, uh, ruler, you had rulers, etc. But so the democracy, you know, as a, as a, as a concept, was something that you gain from the freedom struggle. It's something that we cherish, you know, uh, in terms of the, as the legacy of our freedom struggle. Now, the RSS does not feel the same way because the RSS does not agree with this kind of a democracy. And Modi, obviously, from those tables, does not do. Now, what do you mean by democracy? You know, when we when we speak about a democracy, you generally say yeah. democracy means that you have regular elections. Uh, you have, you know, every uh, uh, basically all sections of society are treated equally. You would also talk about freedom of speech and expression, the freedom to to organize, the freedom to to protest. You would also talk about, you know, an independent media, and you would talk about a judiciary, which is there to uh, to to ensure that you know that the 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 executive stays within uh, the four corners of the constitution. Now, that's our general understanding, but. In the Indian context, you also need to understand that somebody like uh, uh, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who is the architect of the Indian constitution, came from from an oppressed community, from a marginalized community. He was a Dalit himself, who faced serious oppressions in his life. And then when he, uh, through his sheer grit, determination and struggle, he came to occupy a very important space in Indian politics, even at that time, during the freedom struggle. So when the time came, you know, as to what our country should be once we are free, the task of, of, of designing that document, what we know as the constitution today, was given to, uh, to Dr. B.R. Ambedkar. Now, he had a very interesting thing, thing to say from his own, you know, his own social position. And of course, you know, the kind of amazing knowledge that he gathered through his life. He said that, you know, there are certain conditions that are precedent for any working, uh, for any democracy, for a working democracy. One would be that there cannot be inequality, social or economic in society for a democracy to succeed secondly you would need a you would need an opposition you know an opposition which is strong which can hold the other other powers in uh, accountable you would also need equality in law you'll need what you call constitutional morality basically that the constitution occupies center place and we all abide by the constitution and its values he warned at that time itself they cannot be the tyranny of the majority over the minority and this he meant not just in the religious sense, this he meant also in the caste sense that, you know, you cannot have the tyranny of the dominant caste over the over the, uh, over the the uh, other caste. He also said that you need a public conscience for a public, for a functional democracy, which means that you are affected as an individual, as a citizen, as a resident of this country by any injustice that you see around you. Now, but what do you have today? Today, you have, you have the BJP, which has come to power. 
which basically espouses the ideology of the of the RSS, makes a mockery of the constitution at any given point in time. I'm not sure if you had occasion to see the recent uh, inauguration of the new parliament building in in Delhi. It was just a few days back, which basically became the spectacle, a complete spectacle. It was almost like the coronation of a king. So the constitution. The entire notion of you know of separation of powers, of secularism, of the of the will of the people, etc. Everything was cast aside in this just one act. Where, where you had religious leaders, you had the Swamiji's, you know, basically uh, pundits walking around in parliament, doing homas, pujas, so on and so forth, and literally crowning Modi as the king. You know, I mean, that's how we would look at it. The other thing that we are seeing now is that the basic constitutional values, whether it's secularism, federalism, etc., every single thing is under attack. Now, India practices a very different form of secularism. It's not like the American form of secularism or even the French form of secularism, which is a strict separation. Here, it is an equal treatment of all religions. But today, Hindu majoritarianism is common sense. Hindu majoritarianism is common sense in politics. It is the it is what is pushed through by the RSS and the and the Modi government. So when you have that kind of a situation, any kind of a dissent, especially ideological dissent, is completely clamped down upon. So you have uh, draconian laws, which you know, where basically you can throw a person into jail, and that person will have to prove that you know that there is no prima facie case against them for them to even get bail. So you're going to languish in jail for months or for years on end. So you have some of the brightest minds of our country, young minds of our country, who are part of various struggles, including the anti, you know the communal citizenship law struggles that took place over here, who are languishing in jail even till today. So uh, basically any dissent, any dissent is going to be is clamped down upon. You also have a situation where uh, so-called institutions of, you know, that uh, public agencies, whether it's the police, whether it's the, uh, you know, your tax authorities, your informers, enforcement directorate, etc., each of which is again deployed against, uh, against uh, political opponents. And you also have uh, uh, the unprecedented communal polarization. I mean, I can't tell you, sometimes one starts to wonder, you know, what it means to be a Muslim. How do you live as a Muslim in this country? Even the constant, the constant demonization, the constant everyday attack on every single aspect of Muslim life and livelihood. And that is the kind of polarization that we're seeing. And what alongside that, you also have a privatization of violence. So the the RSS has several organizations and uh, that it has spawned, some of which are ultra-violent, you know, and you have these organizations taking law into their hands. So, for instance, you had lynchings of Muslims across the country. You have situations where on Sundays where Christians are gathered for their prayers, for their mass, you'll have a bunch of, uh, you know, these Hindu supremacist uh, uh, organizations barging in, saying that you cannot pray over there, that you're converting uh, Hindus to Christianity, beating them up, and then the police, of course, will come and arrest the pastors or the priests, as it were. There's no action taken against the supremacists in that sense. So you have this the, literally a collapse of you know of how you would understand a functional democracy to be. Now the media, the media basically parrots. It's not just parroting what the what the uh, the Hindutva line. It basically is pushing the Hindutva line. It's communalizing people. It's creating divisions in society. So if you have an incident where, you know, say, I'll give you a small example. The past uh, violence against women is a very serious problem uh, uh, in the country. 
so if there is a, a, a there's a violence against women say there's a rape murder where the perpetrator is a muslim that that particular crime will become national news and the identity of the perpetrator the muslim identity of the perpetrator is what will be uh, it will be drummed up over and over again so as to create a you know a kind of an impression that all muslims are rapists and murderers but at the same time they would be you know murders and rapes by other communities but that just you know slips so you have the media that's playing this entire situ- uh, this kind of a role and the judiciary has not played the role of defending you know being the sentinel of constitutional values and human rights and the fundamental rights of people so this it, it is a matter of concern and of, i mean this may paint a very bleak picture but the fact remains that even in each of these realms of, you know of each of these institutions you do have a fight back as well you have people who are on the streets who are fighting so there is that pushback that is happening but overall the the ultimate desire appears to be to undo any sense of constitutional morality uh, to un- uh, to to make redundant any constitutional value that exists uh, at this point in time that is the scale of attack that is um yeah and i guess your organ and in saying everything you're saying about uh, about the modi government and its kind of track record on human rights i mean your your organization the cpiml um communist party of india marxist leninist liberation um and we've also seen other sections of the left have even made made this argument although maybe more internationally but there's but the modi bjp government has very much been increasingly described as fascist and i guess why do you i guess argue um that this is the case and um can you give more and you can even give a bit more detail on the broader political role which i think you've covered actually quite a bit but in relation to to this why is very much the big why is modi why does the modi bjp government um being is is in a sense fascist yeah i see i mean uh, you know again there are two points i'd like to make one is you no know, whether you call it fascist or not the point is that these elements of of its rule is something that is acknowledged each of these elements is something no one has any dispute on that you know that okay this is the manner in which this particular regime is playing itself out its attack on society its attack on the constitution its attack you know on 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 the secular fabric on all uh, uh, institutions of de- of accountability and democracy everyone except this what but some 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 uh, organizations some parties are reluctant to say that this amounts to fascism i would imagine you know that's also because uh, if you if you were to look at uh, look at it uh, you know historically as a you know as a reactionary ideologically ideological political trend where capitalism is in crisis the traditional way in which we understand fascism say in the 1920s and 30s you can't wait for that for that to replay itself today obviously fascism has different uh, has different features in different governments in different countries it will have its own kind of you know local peculiarities now if for us what we are saying is you put all of this together and what you have is fascism in india you put all of these features together which i just described and inevitably that is the indian brand of fascism you cannot uh, i mean to say that only if the 1920s and 30s the nazi uh, or the mussolini kind of fascism the way we understood it only that is fascism i think that may be erroneous but having said that i i think you know it's okay you call it what you want but the point remains that this is the challenge that we have before us the point remains that we have to accept one thing that this is not business as usual this is not another party of the ruling class 
to say that okay the congress is also a party of the ruling class the bjp is also a party uh, is you know yeah, is 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 of the ruling class i think that's where we cannot make the mistake there is a substantial difference over here this is a party which is backed by an ideology which is hindutva this is a party that has an that has an ideological basis it has a ideological fountainhead in the rss it's backed by private militia groups who will do will not think twice to take law into their hands to kill people to plunder to do anything at all this is a party that has a that that is actively spoken out against the constitution and talks about replacing the constitution so there's several aspects of this of this regime which set it out from you know other ruling class regimes like say that of the congress so we are saying that this you know this unabashed uh, crony capitalism this uh, kind of a subservience to to you know with uh, to imperialism aggressive uh, aggressive majoritarianism the dismantling of the constitution relentless attacks on dissent relentless attacks on the on the minorities and relentless attacks on the working class all of this together you know is the indian brand of fascism and i guess um as you kind of describe you know that you've described the kind of autocratic kind of nature of um the modi government and the fact um obviously one of the one of the most important things as well is the fact that there's always been there is as you kind of alluded to before there is resistance to this um to the modi bjp government and i guess what can you tell us i guess about some of this resistance um um by by the oppressed and workers against against the bjp government including probably one of the most recent things that um is obviously been dominating um the headlines in indian politics has been the recent protests led by um female wrestlers who are demanding the arrest of the president of the wrestling federation of india um who they allege has um sexually harassed seven female wrestlers over more than a decade and of course one of the i guess my, probably one of the insane things to sort of look um you know from an outsider sort of perspective looking at that um it is quite insane to even think that um you'd have a you'd have a ruling political party basically openly kind of defend someone who has been accused in a, a position of power openly um you know who has sexually harassed um women so i guess what you can comment about you know some of that resistance that has been happening in response against the bjp government yeah i guess see basically the uh, i think one of the distinctive features of any regime which is populist uh, sense of authoritarianism is that um, it speaks on behalf of the people it says i know what you want i know what is necessary you know what is what is required by the people it speak to the people but it speaks for the people that's the that's the essence now modi especially has that you know it's a, it's a sense of arrogance it's all of that you know this entire intellect uh, this ideological arrogance plus uh, this you know having political power so it's almost you feel you're you know invincible so the in this it also means that you're not going to listen to people but i think the people have been speaking for a long time now there have been several protests i think after 2014 when when modi came to power the kind of uh, uh, you know the kind of paralysis that uh, that was there in the minds it's it's all lifted now so whether it is students protesting across the country on various issues including the new education uh, policy whether it's landless laborers protesting whether it's adivasis uh, uh, the the original inhabitants of this country protesting against various uh, various projects you're seeing this there is now rising resistance across the country and perhaps i think you know one of the the, the most remarkable fights came from the the farmers who for one year stood outside you know basically occupied all the borders of delhi it was literally 
an encirclement of Delhi that took place where more than 3-4 lakh were of farmers from the country went, set up their, you know, their sheds across around, around Delhi demanding that the uh, union government, the Modi government, uh, withdraw the three anti-farmer laws that it had passed. You, you follow that, right, Jacob? You, you've seen that uh, that entire struggle, which basically was more than three lakh people de- who went, set, just lived outside Delhi saying, till you withdraw that law, we are not going to go back. More than 800 farmers died in that protest, died of cold, died of heat, died of, you know, some various other ailments, various things, you know, because they were living there, more than three, four lakh farmers living there with their families saying, till you withdraw the laws, we are not going to go back. 800 of them martyred. And finally, the Modi government had to give in. It had to give in and those laws had to be withdrawn. And I'll say that that's one of the, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a political activist in, in, in this country, it's one of the most inspiring struggles that one has seen. We also saw workers fight back when, when Modi announced the, the lockdown. In the lockdown during COVID was announced within four hours. Basically, he appeared on TV and said, after four hours, no one can go anywhere. You, no one can come out of the house for the next two weeks. You just have to stay there. It's a complete lockdown. The entire country went into lockdown. But workers who didn't have food to eat, workers who were desperate to get, to get back to the houses, took to the streets. There were protests that took place. In, in, the, in Modi's own state, in Gujarat, in the city called Surat, they were rioting that took place over there. And of course, the, work, the police used heavy force to crush that entire resistance. So you also saw, even in the middle of this COVID lockdown, workers standing up and fighting. I must also tell you that uh, the Modi government has also, uh, you know, it's not, these are not labor law reforms. It's basically restructured labor law to make it pro-capital. It's basically going to take workers back to, you know, to, to a situation where basic rights are going to be denied to them. Now these, it's in the form of four labor codes. The Modi government has still today, it's passed those labor codes in parliament. It has still not been able to put those codes into uh, into force because the workers have been protesting left, right and center saying we will not accept it. And then, of course, you know, now you have the struggle of the wrestlers. It's, it's a matter of, you know, it's really it's it's uh, it, it's very inspiring to see these uh, these wrestlers who are all Olympic. You know, some of them are Olympic uh, medal winners. They brought great uh, sporting glory uh, uh, to the country. And they filed complaints previously saying that, you know, see this, this man, you know, this, this, uh, the chief of this uh, wrestling federation has sexually arrested seven people over the past 10 years. One of them, in fact, uh, is a minor, is a minor girl. And despite that, the government does not take any action against them. They have a protest. They actually go to the Supreme Court. And after they go to the Supreme Court, two FIRs have been filed against this, this man, but he's still not been arrested. Here, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, it's this is not the first time where we're seeing uh, somebody from the ruling party, from the BJP being accused of rape and being protected. We've also seen the BJP give tickets to uh, uh, to people who've been, who have been accused of terror acts, like Sargya Thakur, and who's now sitting in parliament. So their hubris is such that they will not bow down. So they're, they're, the, the, the government has taken the stand that whatever you do, we're not going to take action. You go to court, FIR, uh, the Supreme Court will direct us, we will register an FIR. Beyond that, we're not going to take action. But these wrestlers, I think, have really stuck to their guns. A remarkable mobilization is now taking place around it, where student organizations, women organizations, various other political parties have all gone and expressed their solidarity. 
yesterday i must tell you that you know uh, uh, there were protests in even in across the country there's a, a series of protests that have been planned on third as well so up to fifth various groups are the basically uh, across the country now the joint uh, trade union basically the central trade unions which has a coordination committee these are the biggest trade unions in the country or the joint committee of these trade unions have issued a call that all trade unions should support these wrestlers and go on uh, and go on protest the uh, uh, farmers have their own coordination committee across the country their organization has given a call for protest between uh, third to uh, third to fifth student organizations have also given a call that they are all in support of these of these wrestlers and they were also going in protest so now again we seeing a mass surge of protests against the inaction not inaction the protection that the modi government is giving to this man last time i must tell you all of this protests are taking place and the uh, the new parliament house was uh, a building was inaugurated on 28th of may on that day uh, these wrestlers said that they are going to have a big protest they were brutally beaten up and arrested and cases have been filed against them while the modi government invited the perpetrator of the sexual harassment to the inauguration of the new parliament house so there's a picture now a photo of this man brijbushan saying standing right in front of the new parliament house in this white white <laughs> outfit of his while the corresponding picture is of these wrestlers all being arrested Hi. Well, thanks for that, um, Clifton. Um, we can con- we'll go and conclude. I guess conclude this um this interview. But I guess do you have like any kind of final comments that you would like to make? Um, especially ahead of um the the Eco Socialism Conference where you'll be um speaking at that you'll be speaking at. Uh, see, I mean, I I think you know the basically the challenge across the the globe. I think is when we say that democracy is in is you know is in is in a crisis. Democracy is at peril. Uh, our fights uh, as a party you know our understanding is the fight is not for a status quo ante it's not to go back to the kind of democracy that existed which itself was inadequate i think for us the question is also how do we fight and how do we get to a point where a proletarian democracy actually becomes a reality those are the paths that we need to uh, look for so for instance uh, the kind of uh, struggles that are happening even in our country which are very very inspirational so the fight against uh, uh, modi or the you know this kind of a fascist kind of regime is not against an individual it's against an ideology so that doesn't only mean you know that it's it's a fight for communal harmony it's a fight for annihilation of caste it's a it's a question of class struggle it's a fight against crony capitalism it's a fight for dismantling patriarchy so on and so forth so i would imagine that 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 is the imagine you know that is something that we all need to bear in mind in our struggles you know wherever we we are fighting these kinds of uh, regimes all right well thank you very much um clifton and yeah well i think we're all yeah. going to looking forward to hearing you speak at um the eco eco social 2023 a world beyond capitalism conference um clifton de rosero will be speaking on the panel the fight for democracy in india is modi fascist i hope you got a lot out of this episode to continue producing shows like this we need your support Consider becoming a supporter for five dollars a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.